Good and gracious God, we're grateful for this worship service today, grateful for the joy of being here as your family of faith, and grateful now for the privilege and the challenge of getting into your word. And sometimes as we look at your word, it almost feels like we're looking into a mirror and we see ourselves there. May that happen today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, Carl Menninger, who was a renowned psychiatrist, he's now uh, passed, he's now dead, but he wrote a book that became an award-winning book. It was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. This was in about 1973. And he begins his book with this particular event. He said it was downtown Chicago, September 1972, and there was a man on a street corner doing a kind of pantomime. He was a man who looked plain by the way he was dressed, and yet this is what he did. He would be still for a long time, then all of a sudden he would raise his hand slowly like this, point one finger, and then he would point at someone, the nearest point person to him, and say, guilty! You can imagine how the people reacted to that. Some people backed up and they thought, how did he know? Other people thought, guilty of what? Some were thinking, maybe he knew that I was guilty of lying, that I was guilty of being arrogant to God, that I was guilty of unfaithfulness to my wife, that I was guilty of borrowing, well, maybe embezzling funds. And the list could go on and on. And then another question that was asked was, guilty before whom? Who was the one that I had wronged? All of those questions were important. What would you be thinking about if someone looked at you and pointed and said, guilty? What would be at the back of your minds? To what would that be referring? Well, I believe if David were asked that question, there is no question in my mind that David would know exactly what the person was speaking of. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, as we'll see today very vividly, David fell short of God's expectations for him. As we continue this series entitled, After God's Own Heart, on the life of David, I'm happy to say today that the Bible does not gloss over the shortcomings and the failures of its heroes, and therefore we can relate to them. It's very explicit in showing their vulnerability and showing their, their shame. Today, as we look at this event in the life of David, that would be an R-rated movie, to be sure, or it, would be, it could be referenced in some of those exposés, uh, those tabloids that we see as we go through the grocery line. In the life of David, it probably falls only behind, and in terms of its familiarity, his uh, victory with uh, Goliath. It's a classic account of one sin leading to another. If you would, if you have your Bibles with you, please take them out or follow along on the screen as I read part of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. 
Listen now for the word of the Lord. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to David, sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him about how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go down, did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. May God add his blessing, understanding, application upon this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's first look at, more closely at this story of David and Bathsheba. The passage begins with the pensive statement, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. In the previous chapter, David was out there doing battle, leading the forces himself. David, as the commander-in-chief, had made Israel a force to be reckoned with. We aren't told why David doesn't go to battle with his men. Some have conjectured that it was because of his success. It was no longer a challenge. He had become bored with battle. Others would say that he might have taken his press clippings a little bit too seriously, and possibly he thought he was above that now. He could just stay home. Certainly, there could be several reasons for his desire to stay behind in the security of his palace while others were risking their lives 
One thing we do know, David has put himself in a vulnerable place. Listen to these words from pastor, professor, and writer Kenneth Chafin as he talks about David's condition at this point in his life. It was a time when many of David's goals had been reached and he was experiencing fulfillment and satisfaction. Israel was united, the borders expanded, the country was prospering, and David was now firmly established in the minds and hearts of the people. Having the pressure off may have made David more vulnerable to temptation. It's at this point that David does, does face unexpected temptation. Some would say that it was after a midday nap. Others would say he went to bed early in boredom, and then he got up in the middle of the night. He couldn't sleep. He goes to the top of the palace, which is higher than any other point in the city there, at least that part of the city. And in the cool breeze of the night, he looks out over the horizon and is drawn to one particular dwelling. You know the story of how, in a way that was discreetly private, a beautiful woman named Bathsheba was bathing herself in her courtyard. Now that was not, that was a very normal custom. There was nothing extraordinary about that. Somehow I believe that if she had known that David was watching, she would have quickly gone inside. She would have been more modest. When David sees the stunningly beautiful Bathsheba, he was tempted. Now, it wasn't wrong to be tempted, but what he does with temptation is sinful. I picture him becoming the voyeur and staring at her, which is his first mistake. Then using his kingly powers, he sends someone to find out exactly who she is. His lust is driving him to a place that he should not go. He finds out that she's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam, one of his bodyguards who would have given his life for David. She's also the granddaughter of one of his trusted counselors. But even more than that, to make matters worse, she is the wife of one of David's fiercest warriors one who's been loyal to him, one who's out there risking his life on behalf of the king and Israel at that very moment. If David's filter of morality were in place, lights would have been flashing off in his mind, off limits, off limits. Please remember, David has two wives at home already. He was allowing his position and his fame to cloud his conscience in the kind of malaise in which he was experiencing to the point that he calls for one of his servants to go and bring Bathsheba to him. Even though David is a man after God's own heart, he gives in to the temptation and he sleeps with her. While we aren't told whether it was consensual or mutual, we do know that it would have been very difficult to reject the charismatic king there on his own turf. After what is nothing more than a one-night stand, David sends her home after he's lustfully used her. While he must have felt guilt the next morning, he also knew that only his servants, his trusted servants, knew about what had transpired. No one was hurt, even though it was a terribly misguided act of unbridled passion. Soon all would be forgotten 
But no, the word soon came back to David from Bathsheba that she was pregnant. Since she had just gone through the ritual of menstrual cleansing, there was no way that it could be Uriah's child. There was no question that it was David's baby. David panicked and quickly devised a plan which would cover up his sin. He sent a word to his general, Joab, to send Uriah home as quickly as possible. When he reported to David, he queried him. Oh, after all the small talk, like, how's the battle going? How's Joab? How are the soldiers? The reason for his being there came out. He sends him home. It was understood that he would have a time of rest and relaxation, and he could be intimate with his beautiful wife. David even sends a gift, we're told. He sends probably some food and some, some drink. But David's cover-up is foiled by Uriah, who in an act of solidarity with his comrades on the battlefield, does not do what they aren't able to do. He does not go home, but he sleeps with David's servants in the entrance to the palace. When David hears the word of Uriah's highly commendable loyalty, he quickly devises a second cover-up plan of his, dis, his indiscretion. He, seeks, he asks Uriah to stay another day. He invites him to his table, gives him too much to drink, gets him drunk, and he sends him home. But even though he's drunk, his high level of integrity is far above David's, and he sleeps on a mat again among the king's servants. Since the second cover-up doesn't work, David is desperate. He sends Uriah back to Joab with a letter in his hand, and the letter is his own death warrant. Can you imagine that? And basically, Joab is to send Uriah up to the front where the Ammonite resistance would be the strongest. And when the battle became fierce, Joab would quickly draw back his men. And as he drew back his men, only Uriah and some of the other of the best of warriors would be there in front. It would be almost like an ambush. And they were killed while valiantly fighting out of loyalty to their king and their country. The news comes back that Uriah and some of his comrades close to the wall of the enemy had been shot with arrows from the Ammonite archers. After David hears the news in a crass way, he sends word back to Joab and says, well, you know, this is what happens in battle. Some people die in battle, you know. Seemingly to all who observe what happens next, David is unbelievably compassionate, for he calls for Uriah's grieving widow and makes her his wife. One sin had led to another, and soon there was a downward spiral of deceit that even led to murder. Well, David must have breathed a sigh of relief when he heard the word about Uriah's death, thinking that he'd gotten away with it. There is no way that he had gotten away with it. The last verse in the chapter simply says that God knew all that had happened, and God was displeased. Think about it. Not only had innocent people died and their families suffered grief, but the baby born to David and Bathsheba also died, bringing them horrible grief. Furthermore, when we look at Israel's history after this time, 
There was great turmoil in David's family as well as all of Israel because of David's sins. All of it happened because one sin led to another. I believe that the David and Bathsheba story vividly demonstrates the downward spiral of sin. It began with David's vulnerability. For all the reasons that we mentioned, his guard is down. He is easy prey to the evil one. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. What does that look like for you? Maybe you've achieved your goals and you're looking for new challenges. Maybe you're bored and feel a need for some kind of excitement. It could be that you're physically, emotionally, spiritually fatigued and drained, and some of your moral filters are shut down. You may be in a season of discouragement and or grief and are ready to rationalize away any temptation that might come your way. Or possibly on the other end of the spectrum, you've been so successful, so many achievements, so many victories, that you kind of consider yourself above all that. There's no way that you would fall. It's crucial for us to recognize what makes us most vulnerable. Each one of us is a little different. If we could interview David this morning and say, David, what about it? And he would admit his vulnerability, and he would ask so much to have the possibility of a do-over. His vulnerability had led to one of the very lowest times in his life, even though he was a man after God's own heart. If great King David was vulnerable, oh, my friends, you and I are also vulnerable. Ask God to help you to recognize and understand your vulnerability and your seasons of vulnerability so that you won't fall prey to the snares of the evil one. The next step, of course, is temptation. When David spies the beguiling Bathsheba, he is tempted. Temptation, as I said, is not a sin in itself. It could have been resisted. I mean, David could have looked the other way. He could have gone to another place on the roof, but he didn't. His lust caused him to go the next steps. I really like Psalm 1. We don't know for sure that David wrote it, but it gives us insight into this process which takes place. Notice the, in the first verse of Psalm 1, the three verbs and the progression. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. It's almost like this. I walk, and let's say that's something that's tempting. I walk and I almost get in an accident because I'm watching what it is. Next, I stand for a while and I gaze at it, but I don't participate. And then finally, I sit down and I'm part of what's going on. In contrast to that, instead of that, in the second verse we find, but instead his delight, speaking of the one who is blessed and doesn't do that, his delight is in the law of the Lord, the scriptures, and on his law he meditates day and night. When the Bible becomes a daily, hourly part of our thought life, even though we're in a vulnerable state, we have the insight and the ability, with God's help, to resist temptation. I mean, Jesus is the great example of that. When Jesus is tempted in a vulnerable state after being in the wilderness for 40 days, what does he do when the devil three times tries to beguile him and tempt him? He uses scripture to respond to him. So it could have been for David and for us. 
This week in Vacation Bible School, I heard the kids singing songs and brought back all kinds of memories. Some of the songs that I learned that still come back to me. One of those songs as I was preparing this is a rendition of King James Version's vocal presentation of Psalm 119.11. I won't sing it, but I'll tell you what it said. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee, that I might not sin, that I might not sin. Thy word have I hid in my heart. The next step in the downward spiral comes when David panics as he looks at the possible consequences of his sin and tries to cover them up with several more sins. As has already been stated, one sin leads to another and then another and then another. Does that sound familiar? Maybe it's not now in the past and, and, and you are forgiven and you've moved on. Maybe you're still in a string of unfolding indiscretions and lies. I've seen this step played out in the financial world. Maybe it starts with cheating on taxes and then it's cheating on something else and then it's embezzlements and finally it's disaster. I've seen it in marriages which have broken up because of affairs and then attempted cover-ups. I've seen it in the, in the world of destructive addictions where people try to cover up, try to cover up, and pretty soon there's destruction. It's important to know that your sins will find you out. What if David would have come clean at the very beginning? What if he would have owned up to what he did with Bathsheba? Oh yeah, it would have been a problem, but innocent lives would have been spared, and the course of Israel's history might have been altered. Today, maybe it means coming to grips with what is happening and coming clean before God and the people around you. As I just mentioned, the next step in the spiral is innocent people, sometimes those whom we love, suffer because of our sin. Are there innocent people in your life who have, are, or will suffer because of your attempts to cover up sins? When we continue to cover up our sins, often those who follow after us repeat what we have done. The sins of the fathers visited the children. That was true for David's children. That was true, if you read history, for David's grandchildren. By God's grace and abundant mercy, they could have been spared that heartache and pain. Will that be true for you? All the way through David's downward spiral, and at the very end, in the last sentence of chapter 11, we read, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David may have thought that he'd gotten away with it, and in his guilt breathed a deep sigh of relief. But God knew and God was displeased. Next week, we will see the powerful way in which God confronts David with the bleak reality of that downward spiral of sin. So it is with us, my friends. No matter how hard we try to excuse and rationalize away our sins, no matter how hard we try to cover them up, the Lord sees and he's always displeased. You and I cannot manipulate God, no matter how brilliant and successful we may be with manipulating others. God sees right through all of our diversions, all of our smoke screens, and he simply says, like the man on the street in Chicago, guilty. He won't be fooled or hoodwinked, guilty. 
way I, while I might wish that it were not true, the whole premise of Dr. Menninger's book, Whatever Became of Sin, is that we really don't want to talk about sin anymore. Most churches today, we, we don't talk about sin. It's as if it really doesn't happen. While it was published in 1973, I believe it's more true than ever. Menninger writes, speaking of our nation, that President Eisenhower was the last president to use the, to use the word sin in an official speech in 1953. While we refer often to the problems of pride, self-righteousness, and shortcomings, he goes on to say, as a nation, officially, we ceased sinning 20 years ago, and it would now be 60 years ago. It's not PC to talk about sin. With all of our development and discovery and the unbelievable technology which has resulted from it, somehow we feel as if we have advanced past that ancient idea of sin. We are jarred from that understanding, however, when we see something like happened this week. But then we can, as we think about Aurora, Colorado and that massacre that took place, we can skirt that issue by just saying, oh, it was a mental illness, which surely it probably was. In the Bible, there are several words for sin in the Old and New Testament. One of them simply is to miss the mark. Whether it's a target which should be hit that God establishes because he loves us and he wants us to live in harmony with him, in harmony with ourselves, in harmony with others, in harmony with the world around us, we miss the mark. Whether it's a standard or a goal that he wants us to reach, we miss the mark. Another is the word transgress which means that we work against God and others. Another is the word rebellion, where we're purposely pushed back against authority. Another is the word trespass, where boundaries are drawn in love by God because he knows how life is supposed to be lived, and we cross those boundaries. We could reference several other words, but I think we get the picture. In Romans 3.23, we're told... And it's true of all us, for all have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of God's expectations for each one of us. Jesus is the only human being not to sin. And even though vulnerable at the, in the wilderness, which we mentioned, and I'm sure he was tempted in many other times in his ministry, he did not succumb but lived the perfect life. He's our example. But more than that, using the imagery of the Old Testament, Jesus was the only one who could become the blameless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and he did it on a cruel cross. It's great King David's greater son who graciously offers you and me forgiveness for our sins. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, if we confess if we agree with God, if we come clean with God, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When that happens, as God looks at us, he then looks at us through the lens of the sacrifice of Jesus, and we can be reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. Oh, dear friends, by coming clean with God, when we confess our sins, we can be forgiven and we can break that downward spiral of sin 
that downward spiral can be stopped for you and those who follow after you if you are willing to humble yourself before God and confess your sins. That may mean entering into a new and a wonderfully transformative relationship with God that you've never been in before. Or it may mean being reconciled to the God with whom you've been in a relationship maybe for quite some time. If you would like to talk with someone and would pray with someone after the service is completed, along with others, I will be over here by the cross, and it would be a privilege to listen to and pray with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, which speaks to us where we are, even though written thousands of years ago. Thank you for the example of David, who had a relationship with you, who was a man after your own heart, but who was tempted and who failed miserably, and yet you accepted him back. Continue to speak to each one of us. Give us the courage to come clean with you. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, please stand for the benediction.